Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Let's open in a word of prayer first, and then we will get started. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the time that you provided for us. We thank you for uh, being an amazing God as a God that has raised us up, that has continually sustained our life. You're a God that is not reactive to the things going on in our life, but you're a God that is active continually through our lives. We just thank you for, uh, again, this time. Just allow this time to be a blessing to you. Allow it to be focused completely on you. Uh, Allow uh, for us to gain as much as we possibly can about David Livingston here and uh, the way that he lived his life for you. And that whenever we leave this place, it uh, gives us a desire to draw closer to you. And it gives us a desire to just love you more and continue to know more about you, dear Lord. It's your name that we do pray. Amen. Yeah, so as you can see behind me here, the, the individual we're going to be going over today is David Livingston. I'm sure I'd be surprised if anybody in this room had not at least heard his name. I know whenever I went into actually studying this, uh, I didn't actually know that much about him except for that famous phrase, Dr. Livingston, I presume. We'll go over that here in a little while. But... Uh, Going into, I really had very, very limited knowledge of the man. Um, what was interesting as I was studying it, though, there, there are a few men throughout history, I'd say modern history, where whenever you start reading about their life, you feel like you're reading a movie script. Like you start looking through some of these things, you think there's no way that happened. A couple of guys that kind of pop into my mind is it, surprisingly, if you've ever read, uh, now I'm blanking out on his name. Uh, he was an author that, Patton's one of them, but uh, if you ever read, he wrote The Old Man in the Sea. Hemingway. Hemingway. If you ever read Ernest Hemingway, if you read his biography, the man lived a very, in, very lost life, but a very interesting life in the, just the events that he took part in. He was like a reporter during the Spanish Civil War. He, uh, the, one of his books is about going to a, bunch, a group of friends going to a bullfight. That's almost like an autobiography that he's writing through that book. I mean, the things that Hemingway did in his life were very interesting. When you read his biography, it reads like a movie. You also have Winston Churchill, one of my personal favorites. Winston Churchill's early life is extremely interesting to, to read into. He was a part of one of the last British cavalry charges, like true cavalry charges on a horseback, sword out, charging towards the enemy. He was a part of a, a armored train ambush that he he was a reporter at the time but he was the only one that had military experience to rally the troops to fight back against this ambush like there's certain men that as you're reading these biographies you're thinking this this is amazing david livingston is one of those men so going through this it was really interesting to read some of the things that uh, that i found out about him oh, another interesting thing about him is he was he was a believer he uh, dedicated his life to the lord to the service of the lord he classified himself as a missionary. There are many that were outside the Lord that would have just classified him as an explorer. And the reason that they would do that is because Livingston, even himself in his journals, only notes one convert to Christianity in his entire life. And the sad part about that is that one convert eventually reverted back to polygamy and denounced, the, uh, denounced Christ. So as we go through this, it's going to be interesting to go through his life because he is a missionary. He is doing the Lord's work, but it's in a way that we wouldn't really necessarily be doing. Did I just do something? I moved my leg around a lot. Okay. 
All right. So, with that said, let's get into David Livingston's life. So we're going to break this, this entire class down into multiple, I think it's uh, four or five different phases. The first phase we're going to go over is his early life. I also don't usually use PowerPoint, so if I don't push the button, someone flag me down. So his early life. Livingston was born in Scotland on March 19, 1813. He was born to a, a father named Neil, and his mother's name was Agnes. He actually had two other uh, brothers and two other sisters. His father was actually a, a Calvinist Congregationalist. I had to research what exactly that was, and it sounds very similar to what, what we are. They would adhere to Calvinist doctrines and teachings and theology, but they didn't have a direct connection to a uh, governing body, so they were, they were us. They were independent, but believing in the Calvinist theology. He actually started his own business of going door-to-door selling tea, which in England, I'm sure, was very lucrative for him. But what was interesting about him was he, was he was a believer, he was a Christian, he was very strong in his theology, and so whenever he would go out on his route to sell these, the, the bags of tea, he would hand out tracts. So he would hand out tracts to people who were selling the tea too, he made sure every time that somebody got you know, some of his tea that they had a track in the tea with it. He also, as he was just walking along the street, he would just hand out tracts as he was going from door to door. So the man was continually trying to spread the word. He was also known for reading as much as he could about theology, travel, and missionary enterprises, a trait that would eventually rub off on his son, David, as he grew up. I'm going to push the pause button here, because as I was going through this, this message, and this is going to be a little rabbit trail, might be a little bit dangerous to do, but I want to push pause, because as I was reading through this, the one thing that stuck out to me about David's early life, we're going to go over some of the things that went, he went through in his early life, the one thing that kind of really stuck out to me is the fact that his father's three interests were theology, travel, and missionary enterprises. So dads, any dads in this room, I think it's very important for us to realize and focus on the fact that a lot of the time people think that children are getting their main influence from their mothers in the home. We can see here blatantly that that's not true. They do get a lot of influence from their moms, but children always look up to their dads. Little children will always look up to their dads to find out what way they should go. And so we see here in David's life, eventually he would be the most widely known explorer in the world, even today. And the way he got that passion was from his father, seeing what his father was passionate about. That kind of convicted me as I was going through this, because I know, you know, Saturday mornings I like watching Notre Dame football. My kids are fully aware that I like watching Notre Dame football. And as I was studying this, I took a break to watch a, a Notre Dame football game, and Reagan sat down next to me and said, oh, you're watching Notre Dame again? I said, yeah. She goes, you really like Notre Dame. I thought, yeah, yeah, I do. And then I thought, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I really hope that this girl knows that I, I love the Lord more than I love Notre Dame. So that's my PSA for you for a minute. Just We'll get back to Livingston now. So what was interesting about it, as I mentioned, it was... His, his mother, his father, he had four siblings and himself. So we have all seven of these people, and they actually lived in a one-room tenement overlooking a cotton mill in this town in Scotland that they lived in. The reason that's significant is that they lived in this, this cotton mill that overlooked, or they lived in this tenement that overlooked the cotton mill, because at age 10, he actually went to work for this cotton mill. 
So it, the time frame that we're looking at here is the Industrial Revolution. It was a very dark time for working class people. Uh, what we're looking at here is David Livingston going to work for a cotton mill, which was not uncommon for children. There's no child labor laws at this time in England or in the United States. So you have a 10-year-old going to work for this cotton mill. But the interesting thing wasn't necessarily the fact that a 10-year-old's going to work for the cotton mill. The 10-year-old's going to work for the cotton mill for 14 hours a day to help his family survive. So I, I, I saw Eli, just so you guys have kind of a, a, a guesstimate of what David Livingston would have looked like, you know, trekking into the cotton mill. Uh, I saw Eli Geyer this morning in the copy room, and I looked at Eli and said, hey, how old are you? He said, oh, I'm, I'm going to turn 10 in December. So there's a picture Eli Geyer leaving his one-room tenement to go work for the cotton, or in the cotton mill for, 10 hour, or for 14 hours. What was interesting about that is that he went to work for the cotton mill for 14 hours, but directly afterwards he would go straight to his school and he'd, work for, or he'd study for another two hours at school. So at 10 years old, David was already a very busy boy. Following his father's passions, he would actually uh, eventually show a desire to learn himself from reading. So what was interesting about David is whenever he would be in the cotton mill, the first paycheck that he got, he actually went out and bought a, Latin, or a Greek grammar. So what he would do is he would take this Greek grammar textbook and he would lean it up against the machinery that he'd be working on for the day. And these little kids wouldn't necessarily be running the machines. They wouldn't necessarily be doing a lot of the manual labor. What they would do with these kids is the machinery would often break down because we're talking very first-generation rudimentary machinery. So they would put these kids behind the machines, kind of in areas that adults couldn't get to. Whenever a machine would break down, these kids would run over the machine, find out what's broken down, or if they had to re-spool some cotton, he would put the spool on, and he would get into places that adults couldn't get to. So what he would do is, knowing that adults couldn't get to these sections, he would take his Greek and Latin grammars, and he would rest it up against a machine in the middle of the machines he was in charge of. He would run, fix the machine, then he'd run back to the grammar textbook, read a couple lines, and he'd run to the next machine that broke down. And doing this, he actually taught himself how to read Greek and Latin at a young age. After that, he expanded his uh, portfolio, and he actually started reading some of the classics by like Homer and things like that. He also got a hold of some theology textbooks. But the thing that he found he was the most passionate about was sciences. And this kind of put him at conflict with his father, because his father believed that a lot of the scientists uh, that at the time were using science to refute God. And so his father didn't want him pursuing sciences because he thought that it would actually lead him further away from God. So what he did was he found this one scientist, his name was Thomas Dick. And Thomas Dick was an eccentric Scottish theologian and amateur astronomer. So he found this, this author named Thomas Dick, knew that he was saved. And what Thomas Dick would do is he would use the sciences to actually prove the existence of God rather than try to disprove it. So one day, David was reading one of Thomas Dick's books, and he was just absolutely in love with this book. It was about how uh, science and religion reveal the complexity of God's world. It doesn't dispute the complexities. actually reveals it. David eventually wrote in one of his journals that immediately I accepted salvation by Christ and vowed to devote my life to his service. However, the problem was now that he, he felt this passion, he felt this leading to go be a missionary for God, he wanted to go save lost peoples for the Lord, he didn't know what direction to go. He was still working at the cotton mill, still studying, still trying to figure out what path God was leading him down. And eventually he uh, ran into, at age 23, he read an appeal by a man named Carl Goldstolf. He was a missionary to China. 
who was actually back in England calling people to go to China to serve in the medical fields. And so David immediately saw the connection that he could, he could have here. He had a desire and a love for science. He had a desire and a love for God. He had a desire and a love for mission. And this call that he was seeing from this individual just blended all three of them. So he would immediately enroll in the Anderson College to study medicine, theology, and science. And he eventually would get his degree, but the problem was during that time frame of him enrolling in this college and then graduating and getting accepted by a mission board to go to China, the opium wars broke out between England and China, and it immediately shut the door to China. I tried to do some research on the opium wars. The opium wars were a pretty dark time in English history. Uh, there's a lot of complexities behind it, but basically what it came down to was a lot of the English um, third-party trade organizations, like the East Indies Trade Company and things like that, that were indirectly supported by England. They were tr selling opium to China. It was a very lucrative sell. But the problem was everybody in China was getting addicted. And so at first it was said it sold as medicinal, and then it obviously became just an addictive drug to them. So the Chinese government shut it down but the sale just continued. And the problem became then that the sale was continuing, people were still getting addicted, but then it also was making people bankrupt because now that it's illegal, the price of the product goes way through the roof. It's just a, it's a continual cycle because then the trade companies want to sell even more because they're making even more money on this opium that's getting into the China. So the opium war started and eventually what happened was because England wouldn't shut down the trade, wouldn't reel in their trade companies, China and England went to war. So because of that, obviously, a Scottish um, missionary was not going to get into China to do what he wanted to do. So David had to find another route to, to fulfill his calling from God. And what had happened was um, six months later, he met a man named Roger Moffat, who was a missionary to Africa who won David, o David over through tales of his remote missionary station and about the smoke of a thousand villages where no missionary had been before. So the door to, to China was closed, but in six months there was another missionary back in England, and what this missionary was doing was spreading, spreading uh, updates about the missionary station they had in Africa. And what's interesting about Africa, I was kind of trying to figure out why that was such a significant thing, that there's a smoke of a thousand villages that, that nobody's reached before. What you have to realize about Africa at this time was that, which by the way, I didn't mention this, that picture there on the right is that cotton mill that he went and worked at. So um, what's interesting about Africa is we knew so little about Africa that I don't think it's dangerous to say that we actually know more about the surface of Mars today than we knew about the interior of Africa then. It was something that was completely unexplored. The reason for that is that everything, as you get past like the Cape Town, further north you go from Cape Town, which is on the southern tip of Africa, the further north you get from Cape Town, the more dangerous it becomes just to go. Um, there's lots of, uh, there, I mean, there's deserts, there's rivers that are impassable, there's uh, villages of people that don't want you there. It was a very dangerous place to go into. And, Usually what pushes people into Africa or pushes people into a new continent to explore is lucrative things. So you need, you're going in there to find diamonds, you're going in there to find gold, you're going in there to find coal. And none of the big empires at the time saw any of that in Central Africa. So um, 
there was no desire to even go explore it. So there's this big black hole. If you've ever read uh, The Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, at the time this was the, the legitimate heart of darkness. Once you went past a certain road, nobody knew anything about any of it except for the people that lived in it. So that's why it was a significant thing to hear that the smoke of a thousand villages where no missionary had been before could be seen from Moffat's missionary station. So very quickly, David Livingston dedicated his ideas and his mind to going to Africa to reach those lost people. So on December uh, 4th, there we go. So in December of 1840, David Livingston left his home en route to South Africa, to Cape Town to be exact. At the time, it wasn't called South Africa. It was actually a British colony, so he was just going to Cape Town. So he's going to Cape Town, um, which at the time was a British colony. He immediately left Cape Town when he got there by ox cart to Moffat's missionary station, 600 miles away from Cape Town. However, whenever David arrived at Roger Moffitt, or Robert Moffat's missionary post, he was surprised to find that it was not this remote, rugged place that he was expecting. He was expecting to go in and just be ready to you know, be in the muck and the mire, reaching these lost people. And when he arrived there, what he found was just a transplanted Scottish village. Uh, Roger had been there for years, and what he had done is what the majority of the missionaries to Africa did is he picked a spot that he knew that he could live in. He actually dammed up one of the, the creeks next to it so they'd have running water, or not running water, but they'd have a water source. He created a vineyard, so he was planting trees. He had an apple orchard and things like this. Um, it was a very, they also said that it was, they had rows of very nice houses, and they had a stone church at this place. So it was a nice place. He wasn't necessarily doing anything wrong, but it wasn't what David Livingston was expecting when he, when he got there. So um, for years, David tried to do the conventional missionary, or be a conventional missionary by uh, settling into station life. He taught at the school there. He superintended the garden at Moffat's station. He also, within this time frame, uh, married Moffat's daughter, Mary Moffat, which would become Mary Livingston. Uh, he, he did that four years after he arrived at the station. Something else that was interesting about this, and it was one of those stories where I was like, this, this can't be true, was uh, whenever David first got there within the first year, he realized that they had a lion problem at the station. So the lion was continually taking out their livestock. So the lion would sneak in at night, take out the livestock, and so they were running out of livestock. And so David didn't understand why nobody was doing anything about this, so he grabbed a few of the, the Africans that were in the village and himself, and they went out and they decided they were going to hunt a lion. So they went out, and they are hunting the lion, and they finally found the pride of lions just laying out. And so David found the, the alpha male, the male lion that was in this pride, pulled up his shotgun, took two shots, hit him with both shots. The lion looked at him and just charged eventually got a hold of him, so he was mauled by this lion. And while he was being mauled, all the Africans had no idea what to do. They were all just shocked at what was going on. And finally, one of the older ones uh, picked up another shotgun and went up to shoot him, pulled the trigger, and it misfired. But it got the lion's attention. So the lion drops David and runs for this other guy. And so he starts mauling this other guy's thigh. And while he's mauling the thigh, the, the diary says that he just, the lion just suddenly stopped, stood up, looked at him, and then just fell over. And so he would actually bled out during this attack. So David Livingston was actually attacked by a lion during his missionary and survived it. 
However, during this uh, four-year period while he was uh, trying just to be a standard missionary, uh, do the things that everyone else was doing, David soon became restless, and we're going to see this throughout his life, his adult life. So David became restless uh, in the missionary station. And uh, during this time is when he converted the single convert that he has written in his diaries. And the, when the, that convert eventually reverted back to polygamy and, and left the station, David decided that, the, that he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing there. He decided to leave the station life and had a dream of opening a missionary road or what he would later call God's highway. And his desire was to make this road or this path into the, the center of Africa to be a 1,500-mile line north into the interior of Africa. Between 1847 and 1852, Roger Moffat's station, here he left Roger Moffat's station and opened up a string of his own stations as he was leaving. He was going into places that no European had ever seen. And before this time, or during this time, David started completing his firsts. So i do the air quotes first because this would be the first European to do things. It would be the first European that was actually mapping out the things that he was finding. Before this, obviously, people within the interior were seeing things like Victoria Falls or the Zambezi or this lake that we'll talk about. There were, there were Africans within the interior doing that. However, there were Africans that were living there that weren't mapping out, that were content and happy with living within their villages. So David, being the first European going into the interior, he was the one that began to map out everything. He began to tell us outside of the center of Africa, what was in the center of Africa. So in 1849, Livingston and his team are the first recorded Europeans to reach Lake Nagami, which up there on the screen, it's kind of hard to see. I can't even see it from here, but that's also because I need glasses. Lake Nagami is right there. So you have the missionary station that we talked about sitting right there. Cape Town is right there. So he took an ox cart from there to the missionary station and eventually started his, his journeys into the center of Africa. That's Lake Nagami. So that was the furthest that any European had ever been into the interior of uh, Africa. He was also the first European to reach that lake. In 1851, he was the first to reach the upper Zambezi. So the Zambezi starts up right in here. You can see that on your map, on the back of your handout. So he's the first to reach the upper Zambezi, and eventually the Zambezi River is what he would title his God's Highway, because he saw the Zambezi as the path that he could take to reach lost people, lost people groups within Africa, because it was far enough into Africa that nobody had ever been there, and it was a waterway. So being English, waterways are the ways that you get around places, especially during this time period. So between 1853 and 1856, he was also the first European to cross South Africa from one coast to another. So that's what, I believe it's the purple line on, yeah. So the purple line, if you see on your handout, that's it right there. So he left from this point, went up and then crossed all the way across South Africa. During that trip, the, the cross-continental trip there, he was also the first to find and discover, the first European to find and discover Victoria Falls which is the waterfall you see up here. It is the biggest waterfall in the world. He was the very first European to see that. And the reason he called it Victoria Falls is because at the time, Queen Victoria was on the throne in England. So he knew what, what he would do is he would finance most of these trips, one, by conducting trade while on the trips. So he had very limited finances. He was not a man from, of wealth. So what he would do is he would actually 
take what he thought was needed on, in the interior to trade, and he would start trading. And the entire time he was on these trips, he would just trade with villages that he would come across, and that's how he got through these, these trips. But later on, and he recognized this, and he also, we'll go over this a little bit in depth in a, in a minute, but he, he, on these trips, he, would, he saw the African slave trade firsthand. In multiple of his jur journals, at multiple times, you see him noting things like passed by a slave, uh, a group of slaves. And it normally ranged between 50 and 100. And he was absolutely devastated in seeing these things. He hated slavery. He became a, a very ardent abolitionist. And as he was going through these uh, explorations of South Africa, we see that he has two passions in almost all of his trips. These were the two main goals. He'd always have one main goal of discovering something. And then the second main goal was always to abolish slavery. What he was doing was he was continually going into the interior of Africa to find a different source of income for the people inside of Africa so that slavery would stop. And the only way that he, he could think of for slavery to stop is you have to, a lot like we see with Paul, anytime we have a sin in our life, Paul continually gives us lists of put-ons and put-offs. So he knew that for them to put off slavery, something more lucrative had to be there for them to gain from. And so what he was trying to do was open up the interior of Africa to missions, and he was looking to open up the interior of Africa to commerce, because he knew that commerce was the only way that slavery was going to stop. So um, the reason that was a long trek to get to the fact that Victoria was on the throne in England, Queen Victoria, so he named the falls Victoria Falls with a desire to have further finance from England for his later exp exp uh, expeditions. So finally, after that uh, cross-continental trek, he would also be sending dispatches back to England. He became a very famous man in England during this time. Whenever you become the first one to find multiple locations in the interior of a country that nobody knows anything about, and also do a cross-continental trek in areas that nobody's ever even heard of, you become famous back in your hometown, oh, back in your home country. So after 16 years of living in Africa for this first trip, David finally returned home. He, ref he returned to actually a very terrible time in the country's history. They had actually just gone through yet another war, the Crimean Wars, and it did not go well for them. If you've ever heard of the, the uh, tale or the poem, the tale of the Light Brigade, that happened during the Crimean War. It's the tale of the Light Brigade getting destroyed. So um, he returns home to a time that England was desperately, and England lives off their heroes. They were desperately looking for a hero after basically a lost war. And David was what they needed. Due to this, England, uh, due to the fact that England needed a hero, Livingston was just what they needed. Livingston would receive a hero's welcome, which included receiving a gold medal from the National, or not the National, the Royal Geographic Society, as well as an honorary doctorate from Oxford. The Royal Geographic Society was this, this group of men, predominantly wealthy men, that would finance uh, trips like David was doing. And so he received a gold medal from them because he was the most widely known explorer at the time. This, this geographic society would actually meet together and they would have lectures. That's basically what the thing was. It was a dinner party and then you would have somebody stand up and do a lecture on new uh, techniques of science, new techniques of exploration, new techniques of just pretty much anything that has to do with this. It's a lot like what you would think, like you open up the National Geographic. It was that, only without the magazine. So it was just individuals standing up and telling about these things. So he, he received a gold medal from them. He also, nobody waved me down. 
So he receives the, the gold medal. He also publishes his first book at this time. It's a 400-page manifesto called Missionary Travels and Researches in South Africa. This book was widely, I mean, it, was, it sold 70,000 copies, which at the time was gigantic. It was a bestseller instantly. People continually picked it up. It actually earned him 120 times the amount he was receiving from his mission board at the time, um, just, in, just in the royalty sales itself. What was interesting about this book is you, everybody could find something out of it. If you were a scientist, you could pick it up, and he would actually write about the new researches he was doing in medicine while he was in, because he was a medical, he was a trained medical doctor. He was writing about the new researches and the new discoveries he was making on the interior of Africa that could possibly cure this disease or do this. Or, um, and later on, his last journey will get more in depth in, but it, was, it went devastatingly for him. He ended up, ends up dying on his last journey. But during that journey, he contracts multiple different fevers, but he's in the middle of nowhere, can't contact anybody, so he just starts putting his research to work and he starts finding cures for these diseases or these uh, fevers that he starts coming under and noting it. So this was a lot like that that we would see later on, where he was finding new medicines, new plants, new things that could possibly help. Yes? So she would, uh, the question is where was Mary during this time? So she was on some of his first journeys, but I'll talk about his quirks in a little bit. He wasn't the nicest man, to be honest, with Westerners. One reason that the Africans loved him is he was down to earth and he was, uh, he never talked down to them. He was always kind to them, you know, which made him an amazing missionary at the time. He always had his trust of the individuals, the natives that were with him going on these journeys, but Europeans couldn't stand him because he would always talk down to the Europeans. And so in that, he always, it was always rough going on explorations with him. A lot of the explorations at the time I mean, the best way that I can describe it is if you've ever seen Tar the Disney movie Tarzan in that little village that they have where they're in the tent and they've got like a record player in China and all that. That would be an exploration for an Englishman at the time. David didn't do that. He always went out and roughed it. So Mary would go out with him on the first couple of journeys, the first uh, trips that we talked about. She, but uh, before, and actually I can tell you what year it was, in 1852, shortly after he reached the Zambezi River for the first time, she took... Uh, she went back to England and took the kids with her. I don't have a timeline on, on when the children were born and everything, but eventually they would have six children together. However, he rarely saw them or Mary. His entire life was pretty much dedicated to his journeys. So did that answer? So she, she was on with him for the first couple, but most of the time she was back in England. So uh, he published his 400-book volume, but he, so he would write about the medicines and things that he was finding, but he would also write about the slave trade. And it became a, a, an eyewitness view of what was going on with the slave trade. And the slave trade at the time, uh, just to give you some history and background on it, so the slave trade going to England was, was shut down at this time, and actually the English felt a moral obligation to shut down the slave trade on the east coast of Africa, or the west coast of Africa. Yeah, west coast of Africa. So what they would do is actually blockade uh, Africa, and they would try to catch every slave ship that went through. But the problem with that, like we discussed with the opium wars, the problem with that is the slave traders still found profit because instead of it being you would sell a slave for $10 in Africa and originally sell for about $100 in the African slave trade in Brazil, it went from $10 in Africa to $600 in Brazil. 
because they would lose so many ships in the blockades. And so the ships that made it through, the slaves became more profitable for them. So it didn't actually stop the trade, it just made the trade more dangerous for the slave traders, which in turn increases the, the price of the good. Or I don't want to call it the good. It would increase the price of the slaves. So what uh, David was actually noting in this 400-page volume was that he very rarely saw slaves going west. He always saw slaves going east. So the slave trade going to the west was actually slowing down or shutting down at the time that we're, we're seeing here, but it was increasing going into the Arab countries in India. There was no... There was an indirect indirect laws against having slavery in India because it was a British colony. However, everyone was looking the other way. So the slaves were now being funneled east to go into the the Arab countries and down into India. So the slave trade was still alive and well is what David was reporting in his book. But he also reported how horribly these people were treated. He he pulled no punches on being an abolitionist whenever he wrote this book. So during his furlough to England... Livingston's relationship with his mission board also began to, uh, to worsen. It began to sour. The board's desire was for Livingston. They, they appreciated the fame that he brought. They appreciated his exploration, but their desire was for them to, to uh, settle down in a typical missionary station, so like we see in Moffat. So they wanted him just to, to hang out in a missionary station, allow the natives to come to him, convert the natives that came to him. Their desire was to make it um, appealing for... for uh, the loss to come to Christ through what they saw in, in these missionary stations and things like that. Livingston had no desire to do that. And so the final straw was when he went back to Africa, they wanted, this missionary board wanted Livingston to be the guide for a new group of missionaries going in, but he knew that this new group of missionaries going in was going to be the same missionaries that's, that's always in Africa. They were just going to set up a station and hang out. And so he had no desire to take part in that, so he only agreed to take them across one river, and then they were on their own. And so whenever he did that, the missionary board cut him off. However, because of his new fame and the fact that he was exploring for England, he began to find backing from wealthy people back in England as well as the English government itself. So eventually Livingston is going to return to Africa. We see in March 1858, Livingston returned to Africa with a new found mission to explore the Zambezi. The object of this mission was to explore the Zambezi and establish mission stations a thousand miles inland from the mouth of Victoria Falls. We see he found Victoria Falls. They're going to start at the mouth of Victoria Falls and go further in, and they're going to create stations. It was actually a twofold mission. One, he was going to make these stations. He was trying to find lost peoples. However, during this mission, he actually had the backing of the English government. So the English government also had a, a secondary mission for him to just basically explore. They wanted to know if there was anything inland for them to exploit, anything inland that they could start making money off of. Uh, At the beginning of uh, Livingston's uh, journeys, we actually see that the English government's telling him to basically stop. They're like, we appreciate what you're doing, but we see no, we have no desire to go into Africa. We have Cape Town. They were also, they also had Egypt as their protectorate, so they were getting as much revenue and as much uh, benefit out of those two as they thought they needed. And so they're actually telling Livingston, it's great that you're planting our flag everywhere, but we don't, we don't want this, we don't need this. By this time, though, Livingston was convincing him that there, there was, there's something here. So what he would do is as he was going on this Zambezi exploration, he would start noting where he found coal, or he would start no- noting where he found diamonds, or he'd start noting where he found gold. And again, it was the British government's desire to make wealth off of this. 
it was Livingston's desire to find a resource in, in the interior of Africa that would stop slavery. So he was going in, marking things, these things off, knowing that if we replace slaves with gold, if we can redirect the efforts going into capturing slaves and selling slaves into mining gold, it would be best for Africa itself and also for all those that take part in it. However, we see from the very beginning of this missionary, this uh, second exploration that the, the mission started going horribly. The first, they actually had a steamboat that they were taking up the river, but the steamboat continually ran aground because it was too heavy. And they didn't have, like I said, they had no maps of this area, so they had no idea where like, things like sandbars, where there was low parts in the river, things like that. So it kept running aground. Also, the design of the steamboat was not made for what they were doing. It should have been made more of steel. They had a lot of wood in it, so every time it would run aground, it would just break apart the hole. And so they would have to stop and do repairs. So it was a very slow-going trip. Also, we see one of uh, Livingston's quirks come out in the selling of this exploration. When, and to get the backing and the money, he would, he, would kind of ex, he would expand his knowledge of the Zambezi. So he would tell people that he knew all about the Zambezi River, and in actuality, he didn't. He knew the mouth of the Zambezi. He kind of went up the Zambezi a little bit, but he didn't actually know that much. We also see at one point at the beginning of this journey that Livingston actually got sick. He had a fever, and so he wasn't really that useful to him. So they decided to go up river, and they start going up river, and they go two weeks without seeing anybody. And finally, they see another trader on the river after two weeks, and they start talking to him. And finally, the tra trader goes, you're not on the Zambezi. Because you're on one of its tributaries. So they went two weeks the wrong direction. They had to turn back around, come back down, and find the actual Zambezi to go up the Zambezi. So Livingston's knowledge of this river is actually a little bit bloated based off of his, his need to have backers. He would also, at one point in his, his journal, we see that he uh, comes upon just a random 30-foot waterfall in the middle of the Zambezi, and all of his, his buddies are around him trying to figure out what's going on, and he just looks at the waterfall and just goes, that's not supposed to be there. Like, that's the kind of thing that was going on during this. We also see that uh, Mary would eventually join him um, during this trip. I thought I had this written down. So we see that Mary's actually going to join him in 1862, but almost immediately after she joins him on this trip, she contracts malaria and dies. Finally, Livingston realizes that the trip isn't going to go as they wanted. It's taking too long to go upriver. They're not really making any progress whatsoever, and so he actually decides he's completely changing the mission of this uh, exploration. He decides that he's going to park where they are, He's going to find a nice spot that doesn't have these flies that are spreading malaria, and he's going to establish a station for freed slaves. So he does that. However, the English don't like that very much, and they're realizing that it's just a money pit. So they recall David Livingston back to England. That happened in 1864 as his backer is backed out, and then Livingston's returned or recalled home. He comes home, and he only lasts at home back in England for a year. And finally, in 18. 66, he sets out on another expedition. Livingston set out on his most ambitious trip yet in 1866, and the desire was to find the source of the Nile. Nobody knew where the Nile started. And so uh, the, the point of this trip was to find the source of the Nile. So he goes out. However, that was what he, sold, he told his backers. In reality, he was finding the source of the Nile, but he had a desire, again, to find this commerce that was going to stop slavery. 
So he goes out in 1866 and starts exploring the interior of Africa again to find the source. However, almost immediately this one goes wrong as well. The expedition started with 30 porters, Indian soldiers, boys from a government school of freed African slaves and local recruited men. Almost immediately the entire group leaves them. But not only that, but they leave them and they start trickling back into civilizations. They start coming back into these towns and they don't want to be seen as individuals that just abandoned Livingston on his trip because everyone knows who Livingston is at this time. So they start telling these stories about how Livingston was murdered on the interior of Africa. For almost six years, Livingston just disappears. Nobody hears anything of him. Nobody knows if he's alive. Nobody knows whether they can trust these men that abandoned him. Uh, with their stories. And so the English actually start sending private and government-backed expeditions into Africa to find him. So for six years, he writes actually up to 44 dispatches back to England to update everybody on his progress, and only one of them made it through. That was the only evidence that Livingston was ever alive, but still nobody had any idea where he was. In 1872, finally one of the, and it actually wasn't even English, it was an American reporter that went into Africa to find him, finally finds him. And that is Henry Stanley. And this is when we see, and if you know anything about Livingston, this is when the famous words reportedly said, Dr. Livingston, I presume. They just randomly meet in this village in the interior of Africa. They shake hands. Livingston says yes, and says something like, I am, I am pleased to have met you, or something like that. So they meet. Finally, everyone back in England knows, and it becomes this huge thing. The hero is finally found in, in Africa. However, he does not return. Shortly after me, meeting Stanley, he was actually on this, only in this village to resupply his uh, group. He eventually returns back into Africa. And finally, a year, I believe it's a year? Yeah, a year after meeting Stanley, on May 1st, 1873, Livingston died. He had two individuals that stayed with him throughout this entire journey. The two individuals were a man named Chuma and one named Susie. There were two African slaves that Livingston actually bought and freed immediately 17 years prior. They prepared his body and then sent it out to the coast. So it actually took, I believe it was three months to get from where he was to get his body to the coast just to get it back to England. And eventually he would be buried in Westminster Abbey. So now we're going to shift gears a little bit. That was, his, that was a long biography of Livingston. However, we're going to go through a conclusion now and, and kind of focus on what his lasting impact was. As I said, this was kind of a hard missionary to do a biography on because there's no recorded converts. He's not a typical missionary as you would expect. So there's three main ways that I kind of focused on how he had a lasting impact on missions. So the first one, he, was, uh, he did multiple expeditions that resulted in finding unreached people groups. Although he only has one recorded convert by, uh, to Christianity by Livingston, and he ultimately reverted back to paganism, the result of Livingston's expedition was the ability for others to follow behind him and spread the word. After Livingston dies, we see just a mass entry into Africa, both by England and all, more importantly by missionaries. Just missionary after missionary after missionary 
not only enters Africa, but directly follows a lot of Livingston's routes. So they go into to Africa, instead of just exploring, they can now go into Africa and find these people groups that Livingston writes about in his journal and start spreading the word of God. Next, there's a new idea of how to do missions in Africa. Livingston rejected the standard views of missions to create a station that resembled a European village and rarely leave to reach the lost and decided it would be best to go out and actually connect with the lost themselves. So he had no desire to just sit in a missionary station. He, he, God put in him a desire to go explore and go explore for him. And so he would leave these missionary stations and start finding lost people groups himself to spread the word. This becomes kind of, I mean, missionary stations don't go away. They continually pop up throughout Africa, but most of the, the individuals that go in after Livingston with a desire to reach lost people groups follow his example. They don't just stay on missionary stations. They actually go out to the villages and find these people to spread the word. He also has a lasting impact on the slave trade. We've gone kind of in depth on what his ideas were, but Livingston wrote about the slave trade extensively in books. He also decided or had a desire to open up the center of Africa to legitimate trade and replace the slave trade, which would eventually happen also kind of to Africa's detriment. England would eventually go in and all the European countries would eventually go into Africa and start exploiting the resources that were in Africa uh, for their profit. However, this meant that a lot of the slave trade as, as we view the slave trade would eventually end. Like I said earlier, his final expedition was actually just as much about exposing the slave trade as it was in finding the source of the Nile. We have, uh, I watched a documentary on him, and the whole documentary was, it was about his last journal. It was interesting about his last journal, just to show you how rough this last trip of Livingston was. He didn't have any, even have paper to write a journal in, so what he would do is he would go into a village to do trade, and a lot of times the, the villages he would go into would have newspapers from, from Europe, so that's how he stayed up with what was going on in Europe. But what he would do is he would buy a newspaper, he'd go back into the interior, and he would, once he was done with the newspaper, he would cut it into fourths, and he would make his own binding, and he would make his own journal out of these newspapers, and he would write his notes crossways against the, the writing of the newspaper. But the problem with that is he also had no ink. And so he would actually put his knowledge of science and the, the berries and things around him to good use, and he would start crushing up berries and make, make his own mixture of ink, and he would write it down on this journal. The journal still exists. It's almost impossible to read now because he used berry juice and a newspaper to write the journal. However, in the journal with modern, the whole documentary is about how they're using modern technology to, to find, yeah, it sounds real exciting, right? So, to find a way to read this journal and they actually eventually found a way to read it. And one of the things that he writes about in this journal is a, a massacre that happens in one of the villages. And what it was was the a group of slave traders went into the village and they found a rival slave trader in the village and so they just went in and just massacred the entire village and Livingston was in the village at the time. And so it's things, stories like that that Livingston writes about and sends back to England that eventually wakes people up with what's really going on. Eventually, the, the, European, or the English felt that moral obligation to stop the slave trade on the, the uh, west coast. Eventually, that moral obligation shifts over to the west coast, or the east coast as well. And that's a lot to do with what Livingston was saying there, because he was writing in his journals that there's no slaves really going to the west anymore, they're going east. 
I have a couple of comments here. I've got a really long quote. I'm not gonna read all of it, but it's where I got the, the title of the, the class here. I never made a sacrifice. He would eventually go back to England on one of his trips and he would make a speech at the Oxford University. And, in the, and the whole speech was about leaving behind the luxuries or the benefits of England on his trips. And he goes through and he, he details the hardships that he's going through. And the whole premise of this entire speech is none of these hardships really matter. And at the very end of his, his speech, he says, I never made a sacrifice. And the reason that he says that is he never made a sacrifice because everything he did was for the Lord. He tried to push further into Africa to save lost people. And, and his hardships, even the hardship of his wife dying on one of the journeys, it was ultimately so he could spread God's word, so he didn't see a hardship in it. Another quote that I have of him is, as for me, I am deter- determined to open up Africa or perish. The end of exploration is the beginning of the enterprise. In that quote, we see that his, his whole life was dedicated to opening up Africa for the perishing peoples. And finally, on his 59th birthday, the last birthday before he died, he, or, yeah, he wrote in his journal, my birthday, my Jesus, my king, my life, my all. I again dedicate my whole self to thee. With that, let's close in prayer. I am out of time. If you have any questions or anything like that, feel free to come up and we can discuss. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we again come to you today and we just thank you for the amazing God you are. We thank you for being a God that places desires in our lives to further your kingdom, dear Lord. Just continue to rekindle that desire in all of our lives in this room, that whenever we leave this place, that we would have more passion for you, not for our own benefits, not for our own gains, but for you, dear Lord. Thank you for uh, David Livingston. We thank you for the example you give in him. We just pray that uh, we would leave this place and be able to dedicate what we've learned here to you, dear Lord. We just pray for whoever's preaching, or for Bryce preaching today, that whenever Bryce uh, speaks to us, that he would uh, be focused on you, dear Lord. In your name we do pray. Amen.